Good morning. It is good to be back here with you guys. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please flip to Acts 10. And we are going to be looking at it and looking at a variety of it. Um, I'm afraid I maybe have misled Tech astray a little bit because I told him to put certain passages up. It's going to be better for you to have your Bible out in front of you and Tech can be read about it later. All right, so as we're digging in, oh, also, I do have, I have a military illustration in there and a paintball one. If I had known you guys were going to go shoot things later, I might have changed that up. Gonna feel a little heavy-handed, I think, but there you go. <laughs> uh, so we've been going through a series called Family History, and in Family History, we've been exploring the Book of Acts. And the idea behind this has been: let's try and see what the early church was like. What were Christians like in the beginning? Um, how it starts kind of sets the path for us on how we should live, how we should behave, who our heroes are, those kinds of things. And as we've discovered, it's a really backwards kind of origin story. Uh, has a lot of seeming failure in it. A lot of people are martyred, those kinds of things. It's an odd opening story for a church, for a movement. But the person who's really the hero is called Acts, and a lot of people have said that's Acts of the Apostles. But what seems to be clear is So as we are looking at Acts 10, we're coming to a really big turning point in the church. It's been called Pentecost 2.0. And in this moment, we're going to see that God is going to continue unpacking the implication of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the implication is going to be huge. Is that the Gentiles, those who are outside of God's chosen people in the Old Testament Israel, those who are outside that family are going to get to be a part of the family of God. For many of us in this room, this is kind of where our story starts. Uh, at the same time, this is a very odd story especially for those of us who are not familiar with a lot of Old Testament law. And so we've got a lot to dig in and get to. So let's start by, we're gonna, just going to read Acts 10, and let's just go 1 through 8 for now. Um, and then let's do it. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision, and an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. And the angel who spoke to him called spoke to him, had departed, and called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to him, he sent them to God. Let's pray together for the blessing. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that it is your mission and not ours. Please be with us here today. Soften our hearts that we may hear your word. If there are places that you need to illuminate, may we receive illumination in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite nonfiction books actually is uh, by Stephen Ambrose. Maybe, maybe I've read Band of Brothers, and it details the 101st Airborne Division in World War II. Fascinating stuff, and fascinating for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and there was a, a really popular show um, that was made about Band of Brothers, which is actually relatively accurate in a lot of ways. And one of the moments that stands out in the show, I think, does a good job of capturing the essence of some of the characters. 
is uh, there was a young man named Albert Blythe who parachutes into Eden. And uh, the show actually gets the story dramatically wrong, but in real life, he fought honorably and uh, lived to see the end of the war. But on D-Day, he, he parachutes in, he lands, and he doesn't quite live up to the standard he hoped for himself on that day. In fact, he's a little ashamed of how things went down on D-Day for him. And much of the episode that focuses on him is about him coming to terms with his failure. And he, he manages to open up to a couple of his NCOs, a couple of officers who are over him, to get their perspective. And the first one he speaks to, Ted uh, Welsh, he's talking to Welsh and telling him, like, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for this or if I'm a good enough soldier. And Welsh tells him, Live, just a game, man. Just a game. We're just moving the ball a couple of yards downfield. They move the ball back. We go, that's it. Well, Live doesn't find that answer very compelling. And later on, he's walking with uh, another lieutenant, Lieutenant Spears. Who's famous for his brutality. And they have this conversation. As they're walking, Spears tells Blythe, You've got some nervous privates in your company. Blythe says, You do, sir, I can vouch for that. They just don't see how simple it is. Simple? What is, sir? Just do what you have to do. They keep walking, and then Blythe says, Sir, when I landed on B Day, I found myself in a ditch all by myself. I fell asleep. I think it was the air sickness pills they gave us, which is something that happened on B-Day, really famous, they gave me these air sickness pills to knock the bottom out. And Blythe says, when I woke up, I didn't really want to fight. This kind of stayed but they didn't find my unit. Spears says, what's your name, Trooper? Blythe, you know why you're in that ditch, Blythe? We're scared. We're all scared. You're in that ditch because you think there's still hope. Why? The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier should, without mercy, compassion, or remorse. All of war depends on it. It's a dark little moment, and Blythe isn't super pleased with that answer either. And for Welsh and Spears, both of these characters, they look at the total chaos and kind of thin, uh, uncomprehensible nature of what they're doing, and they have to find a way to cope. And their answers are, are dehumanizing, I think. It's a cynical view, right? Uh, it's just a game. Or hey, you need to become less human. You need to become less vulnerable. You need to accept that you have no hope. Compassion, mercy, all these things, they will just hurt you out here. Well, I think that a lot of us, um, maybe not in quite extreme circumstances are stated as extremely, we make similar bargains with life. We look at the chaos, we don't understand, we kind of agree with Welsh or Spears. Just a game, better to know yourself, better not to hope. Some take the opposite tack and choose a kind of Pollyanna optimism. Well, people are generally good and everything will be great. Buster Olney, who's one of my favorite baseball reporters, runs the Baseball at Night podcast, and at the end of every show, he says, today will be better than yesterday which sounds nice and it appeals to me and I want to think that's true, but it's, it's ultimately just a kind of wishful optimism. The thing about optimism and cynicism is that they're both naive. Cynicism can feel more adult because it's dark and takes into account all these things, but in general, everything's terrible, everything's great, is both a kind of naive, uh, yeah, naivete. 
Those are ways of coping with the reality we don't quite grasp. So, what's the answer though for Christians? I think we do have an answer that's different than those two gentlemen. Well, the amazing thing about being a Christian is I don't think we have to run from the truth or cope with the truth. I think they lean into the truth. And the truth is twofold. First is, the establishment of the kingdom of God is guaranteed. The establishment of the kingdom of God is guaranteed. Your yearning in your heart for justice and mercy, for a good God, for a good judge, is real, will be answered by God. That's the promise of the Christ on the cross. That's the first thing. The second thing that is also very important that we're going to see in this passage is that the establishment of God's kingdom is His mission. It's God's mission. And that may sound pretty obvious, but a lot of times I don't think we live as if it's God's mission. We live as if God has secured this victory and sent us out and said, and um, good luck out there. I'm rooting for you. Right? And ultimately, if it is our mission, if it's just about us, then that justifies a whole lot of things, right? Street politics is a zero-sum game for gaining power. Let's try and get as many celebrities on our side as possible. Worship better be really Instagrammable. Let's hide our failures and our shames. Let's tell the abuse to be quiet for the sake of the kingdom. Let's live in anxiety, kick ourselves when we fail, and never confess real sin to each other. That's an implication that this is just our mission, but it's not our mission. It's God's. And if it's God's mission, we can do it His way. We can proclaim the gospel with confidence. And so today I want to look at this. I want to look at, we can, I can, we can live out, we can move in the world, we can proclaim the gospel with confidence, we can do the total countercultural stuff that the Bible asks us to do. Because God is preparing the other, God is preparing us, and God invites us to participate. So we start here. God is preparing the other, point one. In the beginning, we meet this man, Cornelius. Now, he's a centurion, right? He's a sworn enemy of all the Israelites. He is part of the Roman occupation. He represents the bad guy. He's also in charge of about 100 soldiers, and uh, he would have been really well respected. He would have lived by a pretty ardent code that he took really seriously. But we see something weird about this guy that would have stood out to the audience. He fears God, which is bizarre. And probably nothing that the Israelite Christians are looking for at this point. But what does that mean to fear God? Well, I mean, simply put, we could do a whole sermon on that, but essentially it means his relationship with God is number one. It's the thing that he is most concerned about. When he walks into a room and has a conversation, his concern is that the eyes of God are on him and he hopes that he pleases God. So, as a result, he does these bizarre things, probably for his time. He gives money away, he prays, he does all this. But at the same time, he would have been seen as outside of the people of God. He's the oppressor that God's people needed to avoid, not engage. And as this story starts out, and we see his genuine faith, we're starting to notice a trend in Acts, which is that God is going for the people that the church would never have expected over and over. We saw the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw the conversion of Saul, who was destroying the church. And now we're seeing the conversion, potentially, of this Cornelius. It's almost like he's going down the list like, oh, you think that person shouldn't be saved? Got it. You think that person's not going to be saved? Got that one also. Like, we're going down a list of all the kinds of people that you would say, no way, and God's working in their heart to make it happen. 
And I want you to notice something else, though. There is no, uh, there's no Christian yet even speaking to Cornelius. God's the first one on the scene. He's doing the work already. And that's true in all the other stories as well, like the Ethiopian. He is there working ahead on the scene. God is stirring the pot before any established Christian even starts the conversation. Here's the thing. This is still true. This is still true. God is the one running the mission. He is the one working. You just don't know what God has been doing in the lives of the people around him, how he's been stirring hearts. Uh, one of the things I'm struck by as I do preaching like at the Stony Brook School is you just, it's so interesting, like, you give a sermon and you're like, that was a dud, I saw like 50 people falling asleep, I should have bought water balloons, and just, I have actually heard, there was some guy, I don't know if I can get away with this, but I heard back in the day someone preached with a water gun on their person and would just blast people that they saw sleeping. <laughs> I should try that out. I think I've become so popular. Um, anyway, but it's telling how, you know, you give a message like that, nobody listens to that, and there's like that one kid that comes up and asks this really penetrating question. You know, the Spirit is doing something with you, right? God was already on the scene, stirring things up. And that has implications for us. The Christian environmentalist Wendell Berry is a genius who should be everything he wrote. He once said that the darkest place is the silence of perfect despair. The darkest place is the silence of perfect despair. Silence is a way of giving up. Silence is a way of saying, I don't have any hope about this person. I had a student once who told me a pretty heartbreaking story this was a long time ago. They told me that uh, they, their parents were going through a really rough time. And I was telling them, I was asking them, you know, what what the experience was, and they told me this heartbreaking story that stuck with me forever. Instead of talking about the most dramatic thing, the fights and those kinds of things, they said there was one day they came home and nobody was home, and nobody checked in on the student, and the student just started walking around the house doing things that were wrong, just kind of hoping someone would show up and reprimand them. And it culminated with the student just climbed out the window and just lay down on the roof for like a few hours. And the sun went down, and they just climbed back in and went to bed, and no one checked in. And uh, it's such a heartbreaking story. I thought about for that student, what was killing them was the silence, right? They were like, I want somebody to get me in the ground. Show me that you care. Well, I think there is a way, well, let me say this first. When Jesus died on the cross, he faced the silence of God. Right? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard nothing. He faced true injustice. He cries out and hears nothing in response. He does that so that you and I never hear the silence. We are always received and responded to the Son. Jesus, right now, is interceding for us. Right now, is interceding for us. They are my people. Sometimes I think we're silent for people because if we're honest with ourselves, we're not very hopeful that God is doing something. Uh, I can think of my own life a few people that, if I'm honest, I haven't spoken to about the gospel even though I care for them very much because I just don't think anything would happen. And in a way, I'm playing judge, I think, in that situation. 
Well, there's only one person who has the right to judge, and that's God. And the call to us is that we are to lean and proclaim the gospel because he is the one who's stirring up. We just don't know. We don't know whose lives are being stirred up. Cornelius is the last person that Peter would have ever expected that God would be doing this kind of work in their life. And so the challenge to us is, as I say that, if you have somebody who comes to your mind, like, man, I could never have spoken to that person about it, and I think it's because I just don't think God can save that person. One thing that I think we learn as we go in the Christian walk is that every conversion is miraculous, and equally so, right? I think a lot of times when you start off on your Christian journey at the beginning, you think that the more dramatically bad people are the more miraculous that they have when they come to Christ. But I think what the Bible would confront us with is that the high achievers were building their own tower of battle in just as dangerous situation. The rich young ruler is in just as bad spot as uh, the prodigal son, right? And so if it's just as miraculous, there is no person who's farther away than another as far as we're concerned. And our call is to preach to proclaim the gospel. We can do it because it's not our mission. It's not up to us. We don't have to be the perfect convincing argument, all this stuff. The spirit is the thing that's moving. And we can take comfort in the fact that God is doing it. We're not alone as we speak about our Savior. Well, as we look now, so he's preparing others. Let's look at he is preparing us as well. So God's preparing Cornelius, but he's also preparing Peter. And Peter's going to need some prep because this is not what he's expecting. And if we know anything about Peter, Peter messes up just all the time. I'm so happy Peter's in the Bible. He makes me feel good about things. Um, he's just a wreck. He's like that kid in class who you're just like, I love you, and man, you're a mess. All right, that's Peter. Uh, and so we have this moment. So we're going to see Cornelius doing this thing, and then we go to Peter. The next day, so we're in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open with something like a great sheet descending and let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds in the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill me. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common and unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And let me just go a little bit longer. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, and he made inquiry for Simon's household, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was watching the gate. All right, this is a bizarre passage, okay? So hang with me. I mean, some of us, we like read it, we're like, what is actually happening is very strange. Uh, the transvision feels a little druggy to me. And then there's the content of the message itself. Like, is God here just saying, like, hey, you should change your diet? Like, what is what is going on? Okay? So there are a lot of reasons we might read that and be like, let's move on to Acts 11. But this is actually incredibly significant. And it's going to take a second to break it down. Okay? The Israelites had a very specific code for what they could and could not eat. And this is laid down by God, particularly in Leviticus. And fundamentally, functionally, the Israelites had three different categories of 
They had, this applied to time, this applied to spaces, this applied to food, it applied to everything. Holiness, clean, and unclean. If you were clean, you had access to the holy. If you were unclean, you had to go through some kind of uh, ritual purification to once again access the holy. So if you look at like the temple of God, if the priests are holy, you have people who are clean to be inside uh, near the temple, bringing sacrifices, and then the unclean have to bring a sacrifice to enter in in the first place. Okay? And this is how Israelites would have thought about the entirety of the world, holy, clean, unclean. It was entrenched in their mind as to how they thought about everyone. Probably similar to in the South, everyone is just who they are, and then the football team they pull for, you know? Ryan, Clemson fan. Uh, so it's probably a similar, not quite, but okay. All right. So the main point of these food laws was actually, in a way, to keep the Israelites secure, to keep them kind of away from other nations. It's not that God doesn't love the other nations. We can see in his mission in Jonah, he cares about the world. He wants to set up Israel for the benefit of the world. But he was very concerned that Israel would start worshiping other gods, other idols, and they do a lot. And so one of the ways they kind of prevented themselves from doing this is they had this pretty strict eating code that would disallow them from sitting at the same table with someone from another nation who disagreed on that thing. It was meant to protect them from that kind of wandering off. But the mechanism has changed here. In the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be set up right at the crossroads. Everyone was supposed to see Israel and worship God. And now people are going out. The mechanism for God blessing the world has shifted. And so with this shift, we have this shift in the food walls as well. And so this is not just about food. This is about people. Because what this means for Peter is, you're saying I, I can sit and eat at the same table with, say, the Roman centurion. Uh, you're saying that, that that's not going to block us off, like that, that that's important. Is it possible that Peter is beginning to think at this moment that the gospel is not just for the nation of Israel, but it's for like the whole world in this way? So this food is not just about diet, okay? This is not like we're jumping off Atkins and trying something new. This is, we are opening up to all other peoples the gospel. And this would have been a lot for Peter to take. He spent his whole life with one vision of how the world was to function, and how it came turned on his head. And also, look, this is not like him going to hang out with uh, Cornelius. It's not like something that people have been like, oh, that's nice. This is not like putting on social media, look at me, such a good person, going to help the impoverished, or something like that. That's, his group of people are going to have serious issues with him doing this. They're going to be very concerned. It's, there's going to be a fight about this. You're saying God just up and changed? You know, this is going to be a battle. This is gutsy and risky for him to do it. But God has been preparing Peter for this moment all the time. Because in Peter's head, are all these memories about Jesus. And Jesus did some really interesting things while he was with Peter. Jesus did things like confronting the Pharisees and the priests and saying, hey, you guys focus so much on the ritual stuff, and you have lost sight of the fact that what comes out of you is what really makes you unclean. That's like what I care about the most. He's thinking back to times where he was confronted about how he was eating. He's thinking back to times where 
Jesus went to uh, this woman at the well at noon and actively conversed with her and helped her become a worshiper of God. The breadcrumbs have been laid this whole way. And so you can imagine as this is coming out that Peter is thinking, and uh, this is surprising, but feels like Jesus. This is surprising, but feels like my Lord Jesus. God has been preparing Peter for this. Okay, here's my silly paintball example. You ready? So, last year, we took Hegeman paintballing. Hegeman's my dorm that I'm part of, Hegeman paintballing. We are like just kind of coming out of some COVID restrictions where we can do things like this, so we're really excited about it. There is this one kid who is new and just the least safe person on a I am constantly coming up to him like, trigger safety, I'm trigger warning, like, take your hand off the trigger, just take it off the trigger. Like, I'm constantly pounding this kid. I'm basically following him the whole time. Something is going to go wrong with that guy. And sure enough, we're in the last match and we're playing, and uh, this student who has so far not shown a lot of competence with a paintball gun is back behind a barrier with a senior student who's been here a really long time. Okay? And somehow, this other student jumps up to shoot and ends up from eight inches away shooting the senior in the back of the head. Now, I watched that moment, and if that had been done to me, there is like a 50-50 I would have ended up in jail by the end of the day. Okay? I'm not responding to that moment very well, if I can be honest with you. And that senior that I saw got shot in the back of the head, two years ago, would not have responded very well. And I'm not sure I would blame him, right? Uh, and he turned around, and there was an initial moment of like, and then I, I watched him just like, oh, like do the, you know, serenity now moment. <laughs> and was like, it's okay. And moved on. And I, I was like, dude, that was the greatest thing I've ever seen from a Hegeman senior in my life. And, you know, came up to him afterwards, amazing. And we were talking about it. And I was thinking, you know, he could not have done that two years ago. He could not have done that one year ago. There was something about him, his growth, and his growth as someone who takes responsibility for younger people around him. And I've watched him grow in that way, that he got to a point that when that happened, his second thought was, after, I can't believe that I should kill this kid, his second thought was, my responsibility is this kid that I need to love. He had been prepared for that moment. Uh, Peter, have been prepared for that moment. And I want to suggest to you that God doesn't, this is not how Christianity works. It's not just like, hey, I'm safe now and now I just buckle in and I'm hanging up. God is actively working with us and on us and putting us into places where we can proclaim his name. He is preparing us as well. He knows Cornelius and Peter are going to have this interaction and he needs them both in the right place and he is working on both of them simultaneously before they even come to each other. This is the same Peter who, in the letter, First Peter, will say this. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In this you rejoice, listen to this, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you may read by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's like, all the things that God is guiding you through right now are meant to prepare you for the ministry that he has for you. That's what's there for you. You are being purified and sanctified. He is inviting you along that process. And Peter would know this because his failures are plastered all over the life, right? He's the guy who denies Jesus three times, all that kind of stuff. And he knows, as he looks back at it, even that. Read First Peter thinking about, this is the guy who denies Jesus three times. And you'll see the humility of someone who's failed in that way. And you don't think that that was helpful in his ministry, knowing that? You don't think in that early church there weren't moments where somebody's like, I've really failed Christ and Peter's like, you can me. Let me tell you what happened when it happened to me. You don't think that was a huge part of Peter's ministry? The Gospel of Mark, which is the one that we think is written directly by Peter, like Peter is talking to Mark to write it, is the one that really explains his failure and sits on Peter's failure. Peter wants the church to know about how he failed so that they can be encouraged and know about how Jesus loves. My suspicion is that everyone in this room is being prepared for certain work. I know it's true in the scriptures. We have the good works laid in advance before us. God has not just left you on your own. He has particular good works laid up for you to do. He's not you to do. So, let's see. Here's the payoff. Let's, uh, Peter ends up, we're going to skip a little bit. Let's go to Acts 10, 34. Peter ends up going to uh, Cornelius' house. And it's a big deal. And even walking in is a big deal. And he starts talking to them and says this. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him who does what is right is acceptable to him. He's having this moment. He's like, man, there are God-fearers and worshipers everywhere. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then keep going, watch what happens. So Peter, in this amazing moment, is like, I can God wants me to tell the gospel to these people. You have access to the Father through the forgiveness of Jesus, who really did die and was resurrected and saw him and ate with him and drank with him. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Where they were hearing them speaking in tongues and stolen God, and Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What a crazy, awesome moment. 
And if we know the significance of the moment, this is the amen moment for a lot of people in this room, right? If you have heritage, Messianic Jew, if you have Jewish heritage, your story goes back the whole way. For those of us who don't, this is where it starts. God grasps us in and adopts us into the family of God. We don't deserve it. As uh, Westerners, we tend to feel pretty entitled to things, right? There's a lot of, well, I wouldn't believe a God who, yada, yada. But that makes us God. God is God. He is big. He can do what he wants. And it is a miracle that he invites us in to his family. It's something we should rejoice about. And I want to end with this. Uh, two things, real fast. The cleanness is still important. The, the food, the ritual, the cleanness, at least the holiness. But what Peter realizes when he talks about living, it's Jesus who's done that thing. And by faith, they're clean for God. And the second thing, where I really want to learn, you notice something? He sent, God sent an angel to Cornelius. Why didn't he just have the angel tell Cornelius the gospel? He wanted Peter to do it. He wanted messed up, perfect Peter to do it. He invites us into his mission. He wants imperfect, messed up you to be a part of his mission. And if it's our mission, the fact we're messed up and imperfect is a huge problem. If I've said something wrong up here, I should spend the rest of the day kicking myself because I failed in my mission. But if it's God's mission, then he's called imperfect people like you and me. Right? You say the wrong things. We're going to mess up. We're going to have to confess sin. We're going to do all those things. And that's exactly what he wants. He wants us to be the ones who have the honor and the privilege of speaking about the truth. Jesus is King. He is Lord of all. He has forgiven us our sins. He invites us to be the Father. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. In a way, uh, just to a variety of reasons, I feel like there's never been more eyes on us as there are now. It feels like the cost of failure is so high. I think of my students and how much more they are under this vision from social media and all those other kinds of things. It feels like there's a constant threat. There's more pressure than ever to be perfect. But you call imperfect people to your mission. You call imperfect people in this room to your mission. Father, we thank you that you love us. That you didn't skip it. That you didn't say, I don't know about Peter. I need that angel to do it. But you said, Peter is my God. Peter is the one who denied me. He's the one who wants sin. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gentleness and your goodness to us. Thank you that you grafted the Gentiles on that truly God shows no partiality. In Jesus' name, amen.